turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We will be in, in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. I wonder if, if looking back over the years, are there any sermons in your life as a believer that just particularly stand out to you? Whether that's 50 years looking back, whether that's five years, whether that's five months looking back. Are there any sermons that just resonate and that you just don't forget? I, I think back and I, I remember a, a sermon from a youth camp that I went to as a senior in high school about what it looks like, what it means to walk wisely. I remember a, a sermon preached by John Piper on the, the it was a call to don't waste your life and the vanity of gathering seashells by the seashore. Many of you have probably heard that sermon. It's a very famous one. I also remember the sermon that was preached by my mentor in seminary, David Crutchley, the day I graduated. And he actually, it was kind of really a, maybe a, a mini sermonette that he just preached in the back room to all the graduates. And he called us to live a life of pastoral ministry and faithfulness to Christ with no reserve, no retreat, and no regret. I've never forgotten that sermon. I've never forgotten the sermon at a, a youth camp we went to at a, a beach camp. Some of you were there, and, and it was a sermon preached on the greatness of God. A sermon that we heard, and we worshiped, and for one of the first times and only times I can remember when we got out of this large coliseum at that camp in particular, all the youth filled the bus and the vans that we were in and no one said a word they were struck by the greatness of God what what sermons stand out in your mind what sermons just resonate with you and and you look back on and think about how impactful they were in your life today we turn our attention to perhaps one of the the greatest sermons ever spoken, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 5 through 7, a sermon that, that we come back to time and time again that's filled with wisdom from our Lord and one in which we will dig through in the months to come. You'll remember last time we were in, in this chapter, or actually in Matthew, we've been in Jonah, if you're visiting with us and this is your first Sunday. We've been in Jonah for four weeks. We took a break from Matthew, and we're coming back into Matthew to go through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. But in Matthew 4, our last sermon in Matthew was in verses 23 to 27. So if you look back, you'll remember that we talked about kind of the habits of Jesus in his ministry. And we saw three things that Jesus does in his ministry habitually or continually throughout the Gospels, we see these three things happening in the life and the ministry of Christ. We see that he, if you look in verse 23 of chapter 4, he was teaching, he was proclaiming the Gospel, or he was preaching, and he was healing. So he was teaching, preaching, and healing, three consistent practices of our Lord. Now as he was doing that, if you look in verse 25, the result is what? 4.25, the result is great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, we don't know why they followed him. More than likely, the, probably a pretty good guess is that they're 
following him because of a lot of the physical ministry that he's doing, a lot of the healing ministry, that he's meeting their physical needs, and so they likely are following him after him for that primary reason. And so when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, we see the, what he does. What is Jesus' response? He looks out, he, he sees the crowds. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he did what? He taught them, right? He taught them. And that is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. I want to just read this morning down to verse 10. We'll stop there. And what we're going to do this morning is is we're going to kind of have somewhat of a different sermon in that we're going to give you an introduction, an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount and what's known as the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. And then next week we'll start going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's read together chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The the Sermon on the Mount that we read in Matthew 5-7 through is the, the first of Jesus' five major discourses in Matthew's gospel. When we, when we look, and I mentioned that, that we don't really know why the crowds follow him. It's likely they're probably following after him at this point for a similar reason that we see in John 6. You remember when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and in John 6, 14-15, we learn that the crowds start following him. Why? Because they see that they fed him, or he fed them. Right? They see that, hey, there's something we can get from him. Let's take him and lift him up to be our, our ruler because he can feed us. He can provide for us. So Jesus, knowing this, slips away. We see that their reason for following him is not exactly the reason that it should be. And so when the crowds come here, in chapter 4, the crowds are gathering. This is a critical moment for Christ to sit down and to teach the people what it means to follow him. Now, I would say before we go on, this is something that we probably see in our own day, that, that it's, it's true today that some people, or that people, I shouldn't say some people, people follow Jesus for a variety of reasons, perhaps, and many of them are not biblical. Many of them do not result in salvation. Perhaps you're here today because you're, you, you just feel better by coming and hearing a sermon. You, you feel better by coming to church. Or perhaps you're, you're coming and you gather here today just because it's what you've always done. It's just kind of your habit. Or maybe you're here because it's just how you were raised. Like, we went to church. We got up. Mom and Dad took us to church. And so that's what we're doing. That's just how I was raised. That's just what we're going to do. Or, or maybe you're here because you think that if I go to church, God will bless me and my life will just be better. And so I'm going to go to get a blessing. Maybe you're here because you're curious. Maybe you just want to know more 
about the Lord. Maybe you want to know more about the Bible. Maybe you're here because you're, you're searching for truth. You're looking for something. You're, you're looking for, for something that resonates. You're looking for something more than what culture has to offer. Maybe you're here because you find theology compelling. You find it compelling to look at the Bible and, and to, to be intellectually stimulated by theological discussions. So you go and you sit through a class and, and you come and you hear a sermon from the Word and you find it stimulating. N- none of these reasons are necessarily wrong, per se. Some of them are a little ro- more wrong than others, I would say. But the important thing is that none of these are good reasons to actually follow Christ. We're not called to follow Jesus because uh, it's just kind of what you should do. We're not called to follow Jesus because you're curious or you're searching. You're you're called to follow Christ because He is the only Son of God. That He is God in the flesh and He came and He lived a perfect, holy life and He died on the cross for our sins. He died in our place and He rose from the grave. He's the risen Savior who lives and reigns and we know that salvation comes through Christ and through Christ alone. The reason we follow Christ is because He is God, He is Savior, He is Lord and we submit to Him and follow Him in faith. That's why we follow Christ. That's the call that you need to know. So if you are following or, or you're kind of curious or you're going to church for any of those other reasons, you need to know that none of those reasons result in salvation. What results in salvation is turning from your sins and trusting Christ in faith. That is what results in salvation. And as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's going cl- to clarify, it's going to give us wisdom of what it looks like then to live as a follower to live as a follower. So let's take a moment and let's just kind of do an overview of the Sermon on the Mount and then we'll zoom in a little and we'll look at the Beatitudes and then the next week we'll zoom in a little more and we'll look at uh, Matthew 5, probably just verse 3 next week. But let's let's do a broad overview. So you may want to just have your finger ready to do some flipping in Matthew 5 through 7 and let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. We see right away in, in verse 1, that there's a distinction made between the crowds and his disciples. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. So there is a difference between those who would be in the crowd, perhaps those who would follow and, and, and be okay with, with following Christ or in our day going to church for some of the reasons I listed, as opposed to those who would say, we are disciples, we're submitting to the teaching of Christ, we're following after him. And so there's a distinction there, a difference there, and it was his disciples then that he sits down to teach. This is an important theme because what we see here and what that results in is we understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not an evangelistic sermon, but instead it is one that he is teaching his people what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Now, it's generally held as well that when it says that his disciples came to him, more than likely it was not the specific disciples that he had called out to follow him in verses uh, 18 to 22. There's just four disciples that have been officially called to him. And so the understanding by the consensus of scholarship is that disciples here refers to all, it would include those four, but it would include others who would say, we are following, we are submitting to his teaching and to follow him, and we want to learn from the Lord, from Christ. And that is what disciples refers to, is all followers of Christ. So in the Sermon on the Mount, we we have this kind of, this 
maybe a, a discourse on discipleship. Uh, R.T. France, a, a scholar on the book of Matthew, says that he does not call it the Sermon on the Mount. He refers to it as the discourse on discipleship because it is written to disciples. It is written to believers. And so the Sermon on the Mount is laying out kingdom living for followers of Christ. It answers the question, what does it look like to be a Christian? So what does it look like? What does it look like? If I claim to be a Christian, what does it look like for me? Right? And so the Sermon on the Mount is going to focus more, as we walk through it, we're going to see it focus more on the condition of our heart than what we do necessarily as a Christian. He's going to start by focusing on our heart. The reason for this, and it's something that we will see later in the Sermon on the Mount, is that what fills our heart drives our life. What fills our heart drives our life. We do, as a result of, of what we love, what we want, what we desire, that drives what we do. Now, this is important, and we'll see this in, in, in especially in Matthew 5, where, where it really makes a distinction between being a Christian who you are as a Christian as opposed to what you necessarily do as a Christian. It starts with who you are, it starts with your heart, and then works out into your life. We see that particularly in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, right? Where, where, where Jesus talks about who you are in him. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so he begins by reminding them that the, in, in the way that we impact culture, the way that we influence others around us is being who Christ has made us to be in him. It's not necessarily in going to a place or hosting a conference or planning an event. Those things are fine and, fine and good, but that's not necessarily how we really influence culture and make an impact on those around us. Instead, it has to begin with who we are. It has to begin with our heart. So in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to see is that Jesus first kind of mines down to the recesses of our hearts, and he is going to expose our sinful struggles and our tendencies. He's going to dig into our hearts. He's going to reveal the condition of our heart, and he's going to call us to be fully devoted to him because of where our heart is, that our heart must be fully devoted to him. If you look at uh, uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 20, um, or sorry, yeah, in verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's calling us to a righteousness that is greater than theirs. How will that be? How will that be? It, it happens as Christ changes your heart. We'll talk more about that later. But he goes on, in, in, beginning in verse 21, he, he deals with anger. And then if you just trace through the, probably the, the headings of your Bible, Bible there, he's, he deals with anger and lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies. And, and each of those, he starts out by going beyond or maybe going deeper. Maybe that's a better, better term there. Going deeper than just what you do on the surface going deeper than just how you're living and, and your, your actions. And he digs down deeper into the recess of your hearts and goes, why do you do those things? Why are you responding the way you respond? What is the state, what is the condition of your heart? And we're going to see that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus dealing with our heart. There, there's four things in particular that, that you want to note, that you want to look for, and you'll see in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you four things that you're going to see on the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing, and we've talked about this a little bit, is that the Sermon on the Mount provides a description of the lifestyle of the Christ follower. So that's the first thing in your notes. It, it describes the lifestyle of the Christ follower. So as we said, you're not going to see an evangelistic call in the Sermon on the Mount. 
You're not going to see the, this, the, him speaking to unbelievers. This is him speaking to his people, to the disciples about what it looks like to live as a disciple. He is laying out a kingdom ethic here, a kingdom ethic. And as he does that, it has been widely accepted, widely applauded by people, even people who are not believers, as they look and say, wow, these are ethical teachings, and those are to be applauded. They're to be affirmed. Even people like Gandhi was a great fan of Jesus' moral ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but here's the thing, is Jesus' ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is not a call to live in such a way that you earn salvation. That's not what's going on here. He is not saying if you do these things and if you live in this way, then you will merit or you will earn salvation. He is not saying that. This is not an ethic to earn grace. Instead, it is an ethic compelled by grace and an ethic that is utterly dependent upon grace. It is dependent upon Christ. So we look and we see the lifestyle of the Christ follower and we understand that it is one compelled by grace and depending on grace and God's work in our life. The second thing that we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount is that it will teach us that kingdom citizenship must lead to kingdom living. Kingdom citizenship leads to kingdom living. Now, you all are aware of uh, of of sports teams, right? You're, you're aware, and I, I, I guess I can use uh, my daughter as an example. Sydney, she grew up and she attended Somerset Christian School, and so uh, through middle school and high school, she would often be seen wearing Somerset Christian School paraphernalia. She has a backpack. She runs cross country, for, ran cross country for them, and so she would often be seen in cougar paraphernalia. Well, three years ago, she left and went to Union University to run cross country for them. Now she's wearing bulldog paraphernalia the things that she has are red and black and we we see that why she wears that gear because that's where her allegiance is that's who she represents that's who she runs for and so her habits this summer were dictated by what she was doing she trained and she ran this summer because she is running for union university she's no longer a cougar and so her lifestyle here was greatly influenced by who she was as a runner, who she is as a runner. She was here in Somerset. She came to Grace. She's at Meadows. But under all that, she's a runner for Union University. What does it look like? Well, you could look and you could see the gear and paraphernalia. You could see the habits. That's what it looked like. Why? Because being on the team dictated how she lived. Right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that being a citizen of the kingdom of God leads to living as such. Paul, Paul said the same thing in Romans, I'm sorry, in Philippians 3.20. He reminds the church at Philippi that they had dual citizenship. They were indeed citizens of Philippi, but first and primarily they were citizens of heaven. That's who they were. So they lived their, their, their greatest goal is to live as a citizen of heaven and to live that out in Philippi. And we see that carry on throughout the Gospels. Wherever the church might be, Paul calls them to live in a manner consistent of the calling of Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. In Colossians 2, 6-7, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. 
He writes the same thing to the Galatian church. He writes to them, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us clarification of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to, to live as a Christian. When Paul says walk this way, he can easily say, hey, you remember how Jesus talked about that's what we mean. That's what it looks like. That's what you need to know. The third thing that we're going to see on the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount confronts us with a question, an important question. And the question is this, is my life different as a Christian? Is my life different? We just meditated on 1 Peter 1, verses 13 and 14, or 14 and 15. We, we meditate on that because it is a call to live a holy life, to live a life set aside, a life devoted to God. Why? Because He is a holy God. He's called us to such. In verse 16, we didn't have it up there, but it's a quote of Leviticus 19.2 that says, Be holy, for I am holy. We strive for holy living, personal holiness, because God is holy. We're not trying to merit salvation. We're living that way because we've been saved. And so the question when we read the Sermon on the Mount is this, is, is my life different as a Christian? We, we turn, if you turn and just flip over, you can look at it, but Matthew seven fifteen to 20, uh, it kind of brings, the, when he's bringing everything to a close in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he talks about a tree and its fruit. He talks about, he's, he's wrapping it up and he's looking at, at, at all this. Are you genuinely a believer? Are you really different? Are you really living as you say you are? And he, he talks about a tree being known by its fruit. Now, we live close to an orchard here, right? If you're walking through Haney's apple orchard and you're walking through rows and rows and rows of apples and you come across a tree and there's oranges growing on there, what do you know? This is not a trick question. You guys know this, right? What would you know? <laughs> okay, you guys were worrying me there for a minute. It's an orange tree. It's not an apple tree. If you're, if you're walking along and there's all these apple trees and there's one growing oranges, you don't go, wow, that's crazy. Look at that apple tree growing oranges. That's neat. Those are orange apples. No, you look and you go, these are oranges. It's an orange tree. A tree is known by its fruit. So the question is, is my life different? Am I an orange tree among apples? It leads us that that, that difficult question we're going to be confronted with in the Sermon on the Mount. Is if my life is producing apples like everybody else, am I really an orange tree? If the fruit of my life looks like unbelievers, there's no distinction, there's no difference between my life and the life of someone who is not a follower of Christ, then I, can I really stand here and say that I am a follower of Christ? How can that be? Jesus is going to confront us with that in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to confront us with that question of, is your life really different? Are you really living in a way that magnifies my name, or are you living in a way that magnifies your own name? The fourth thing we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount is that it's going to remind us that we are incapable of living as God has called us to live. We're incapable. Outside, outside of the work of Christ in our lives. So outside of God's gracious, enabling grace in us, 
We cannot live the life that we're called to live in Christ. We can't. We can't just walk through. If, if you're here and you're an unbeliever and you say, you know what, this is great. I'm just going to live and do everything in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, just three really brief chapters. And we're just going to take it and segment it out. And if you segment it out, you could probably break it down to, to just 24, 26 different little segments. And I'm just going to do those things. I'll do it on my own. Well, guess what? You're not going to be able to do it. You're going to miserably fail. It's just not going to happen. And the Sermon on the Mount confronts us with that as we go through and we look at the teaching. We're going to feel the weight of our insufficiency to live righteous lives. That's why we sang the song, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. I'm so thankful that the worship team introduced that this week because it is a song that's going to resonate with us as we go through the Sermon on the Mount because it is the cry of our heart that we cannot live the way we're called to live outside of the work and the grace of God. We depend wholly on Him. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Do you remember that? The great chapter, he's talking about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. And Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Talking about his apostleship. He said, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I but the grace of God that is in me. Paul says, listen, I'm I'm an apostle, and it's by God's grace that I'm an apostle. It's his work in me that I am who I am, and his grace wasn't in vain. Like it, It wasn't just there and wasted. No, I worked hard. I worked hard to live the way he's called me to live, to minister the way he's called me to minister. I am hard at work, and as a matter of fact, I work harder than any of them. But Paul doesn't end there. He doesn't say, look at me. I work hard. I work harder than all of them. I want you to see me. No, he says, but it was not I. It was the grace of God that is in me. If you strive and you're living and you're you're faithfully following Christ, the, the cry of your heart is, yet not I, but Christ in me. Yet not I, but Christ in me. It is him who is working in me. It's the same thing he said. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Christ is working in my life. He is strengthening me to follow him and to pursue him and to choose righteousness instead of choosing sin. He has broken me free from the oppression and the chains and the shackles of sin. And he has freed me to live in righteousness for him. That's what it means to be free in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. No longer. We serve Christ. And it is Christ in us. That strengthens us to live as Christ will call us to live in Matthew 5 through 7. So let's look at the Beatitudes. We'll spend several weeks in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes begin in verse 3 of chapter 5. They go through verse 10 of chapter 5. The, the, the word you see each one begins by saying, Blessed are, right? Blessed. That, that word blessed is, is derived from the Latin word beatus, meaning, meaning blessed, meaning happy it, it describes the the blessings of those whose lives show and demonstrate that they are a follower of jesus they show the mark of the kingdom of god right and so they are blessed it, this stands in contrast if you just want to write 
uh, maybe in, in your Bible margin, your notes, you can put in contrast to Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus gives seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy, right? And, co- and so now, in, in contrast to those woes that he speaks to them for their hypocrisy, he's sitting here and he gives eight beatitudes of what it means to follow him, to live as he's called us to live. So there's eight of them that we see here. They begin in verse 3 and end in verse 10. And those two beatitudes, verse 3 and 10, form what's called an, as, or known as an inclusio or, or bookends that, that signify the beginning and the end of the Beatitudes. If you're, I don't know if any of you have read ahead or you looked and you said, wait a minute, they don't end in verse 10. Look at verse 11. It says, blessed are you too. There's one more. Todd missed it. Well, actually, if you look at verse 11, it's completely different in structure. All of the ones prior to that are structured the same. Verse 11 is structured differently. It is an elaboration of verse 10, what it means to be blessed as those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so verse 11 just elaborates on verse 10. So there are, are eight Beatitudes beginning in verse 3 and going down to verse 10. So what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? It's, it's more than our, our modern understanding of happiness. Trans, translators early on would, would translate this word as happy, right? But it, it had more meaning back then. But now the word happy in our culture is basically being gutted of real rich meaning. It's just this superficial feeling that I get when something goes my way or I get a gift or something I'm just happy right and happiness can be gone in a moment so it's deeper it's more rich than that the the blessing that that Jesus is describing here is is really indicative of the the one who is a privileged recipient of God's favor of his grace he's teaching that you know what you're as a follower of me here are the marks here's what it looks like and you need to know that you are blessed because you are the recipient of God's favor it shows the 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 covenant grace and the joy of those who have been redeemed right that that is is something deeper more rich than just a, a mere happiness and this idea of God's people being blessed did not start here. It's not like Jesus comes and says, hey, you know what, uh, my followers, if you're a part of my kingdom, you're going to be blessed, and this is something really new. No, the idea that, that God's people are blessed by God has Old Testament roots. If you just think quickly, and we cannot attempt to cover all the references to God blessing his people in the Old Testament, but just a few if you want to think about this morning and have a kind of a general overview. If you think about Genesis 12, or yeah, Genesis 12, do you remember in Genesis 12, God calls Abram right? He calls him to go to a land he did not know, and this is what his promise is to Abram. Do you remember the promise in in Genesis 12, uh, 1 to 3? In verse 2, God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be, what? A blessing, right? So we see right away when God calls a people unto himself, he says, I'm going to bless you, and not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to bless people through you, we, we think about the, the, the blessing of Aaron in, in number six, a, a, a passage that, that a lot of you know, a, a lot of you hear. We actually read it here a, a lot of times as we leave on a Sunday morning. But in number six, 24 to 26, the ironic blessing says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a, a blessing that's spoken over the people of God, and in many ways it really kind of describes what it means to be blessed, 
right? That God would shine his face upon us. That God would be gracious to us. That, that he would lift up his countenance upon us. That he would give us peace. That is what it means to be blessed. We get into the Psalms. We see many, many references to being blessed. In Psalms 1.1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or sits or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So the one who clings to the Lord and seeks the Lord's truth and wisdom, he's blessed. Later in Psalm 32, 1 through 2, we read that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whom the Spirit in whom, whose spirit there is no deceit. So there's blessing in the forgiveness of the Lord. In Psalm 41, 1 and 2, we again understand that, that the one, it says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. So the one who thinks and, and helps the poor is blessed. It says, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him, keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. God blesses his people. But perhaps one of the most lengthy passages on God's blessing is found in Deuteronomy 28, 1-6. As Moses speaks his, his final words, his final message to the people of God before his death, in Deuteronomy 28, he talks about blessing in light of obedience. Now this is important. We think about the, the narrative of Scripture. The students this morning, if I'm not mistaken, you talked about the meta-narrative, the narrative of Scripture, right? The, the story from Genesis to revelation right now when we come to deuteronomy 28 and we look at the idea of blessing listen to what moses tells the people from god this is the word of god if you faithfully obey the voice of the lord your god being careful to do all his commandments that i command you today the lord your god will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the lord your god Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall the fruit of your womb be, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And he goes on for the next eight verses talking about the blessings that come from full obedience to the Lord. If we fully obey, obey all that he commands, then we will be blessed, he says. So Moses stands before the people and says, just obey everything he says. That's all you got to do. Just obey it. Well, the rest of the Old Testament drives home the truth that we cannot do it. (laughs) We can't do it. Over and over and over again, after that moment, you see God's people failing. You see them rebelling. You see them turning from God in sin. We see them choosing sin over and over and over again. And we're reminded, we learn, that man is incapable of full, perfect obedience. We can't live a righteous life. We can't live a holy life. We need help. We need God's intervention. We need it. And that's why we have the glorious sending of the Messiah. That's why Jesus is sent, right? He, sent, he is sent to live a perfect life and to die a death he does not deserve in our place so that we might be saved. The righteousness that is from within me will never attain 
God's righteous standard. It never will. Only the righteousness of Christ attains that standard. That's why when we, we come to Romans 3, 21 to 22, it's such a beautiful passage where it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The, the righteousness that we're called to, the perfect obedience to God that we're called to, that we're incapable of, is revealed to us in Christ and is received by faith in Christ. It is an imputed righteousness, one credited to us by God through Christ. We learn that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We learn that for our sake, God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We are called to obey, and in obedience there is blessing, but our obedience is woefully lacking and insufficient. But thanks be to God that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Redeemer, who perfectly obeyed. And so the question for some of you this morning is, are you looking to your own righteousness? Are you trying to attain a righteousness that would appease a holy God? that would satisfy His holiness, that would measure up to His holiness? Are you trying to do something you are incapable of doing? It is a waste of time. You can't do it. I would appeal to you to look to Christ. To look to Christ. The other things I would point out to you about the Beatitudes is you, you heard me say that 3 and 10, verses 3 and 10 are kind of bookends, right? Do you notice how they're different? Does anybody see how they're different from the others? a pretty significant difference that we'll dig into verse 3 and 10 is structured very much the same but uses different words blessed are the poor in the spirit for theirs what is the kingdom of heaven verse 10 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs what is the kingdom of heaven right Talking about the kingdom of heaven, a beginning and end talking about the reality that the kingdom of heaven is ours now a present reality. The rest of them are all shall. The rest of them are all structured. Blessed are these, for they shall have this. It's a common theological thread that we see all through the New Testament. This whole idea of already, not yet. That we already experience, experience many present realities, many blessings as believers. But there are other blessings, there's realities that we have not yet experienced and still awaits us. It is the comfort of a present blessing in, in view of future hope. Present blessing in view of future hope. How, how can it be? I, I would, this is something you can do this afternoon as we don't have time this morning, but if you'll look at Psalm 13, you'll see an example of David having present blessing, right? Knowing that there is something coming in the future. Because in, in Psalm 13, David cries out, and it's the psalm where he cries out and says, How long, O Lord? How long will I, I continue to feel forgotten? I feel like you're there, you're quiet, you're, you're just not coming, you're not answering, you're not overthrowing my foes. When, O Lord, will you do it? But then at the end of the psalm, in verses 5 to 6, he rejoices in the steadfast love of the Lord. He rejoices in the fact that God has saved him. He rejoices in the fact that God has dealt bountifully with him. And so he knows the blessing of what it means to be a, 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 a child of God. And so he, he trusts that there's future deliverance. 
He's blessed now, looking forward to future deliverance. You see, what we're going to see in the Beatitudes in the next few weeks is that Jesus completely flips the idea of what it means to be blessed. He completely flips over the idea of what it means to have blessing, right? He, he, he flips it upside down. If you think about all these, the poor in the spirit, blessed are the poor in the spirit, the mourners, the, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted. Those are the ones that are blessed. I mean, you would think there would be other things listed. Those, blessed are the rich, blessed are the athletic, blessed are the smart, blessed are the happily married, blessed are the ones with a bunch of kids that just look right and have all their shoes tied and there's nothing all over their face, Right? We would think it would be those things, but it's not. And so when we look and we see, man, Jesus flips upside down the idea of what it means to be blessed, there's going to be two questions that we're going to be confronted with in the Beatitudes. One is, do we define blessing in our lives the way that Jesus does? Do we understand what it means to be blessed in the same way that Christ does? Because here's the unfortunate reality is that a lot of us have switched that and we have developed our own categories of blessings, our own beatitudes. Stuff like this. Blessed is he who has a solid 401k for his retirement and it is heaven on earth. Blessed are the successful for they will inherit the earth. Blessed is he who has all the toys because he'll be satisfied. Blessed is he who doesn't take risk for he is safe. Blessed is he who lives in a nice house because others envy him. Blessed is he who has a lot of friends, for he is popular. Blessed is he who goes to church on Sunday, for he looks good to those around him. Listen, those are not the blessings that Christ talks about. That's an Americanized view of Christianity. That's a false gospel. And we're not going to go that way. We're going to be those who pursue Christ and live in his grace by his power and understand that we are blessed in Him as His people. The second question is, whose blessing are we seeking? Whose blessing are we seeking? A- am, I, am I seeking to be blessed by the world? Am I seeking the approval of the world? I- is there a, a peer group that you're seeking a blessing from? Or is there this kind of goal audience this this goal group that you're like man i want to live in this way to impress that group so that they would see me and approve of me and i would be blessed by them is there a social media audience driving the way you live that you might be blessed by that audience is it a business circle that you're affiliated with is it a community organization a club that you're a part of you want to find approval in Listen, if we take hold of what Christ calls us to and how he describes kingdom living in Matthew 5 through 7, then we will not run after the blessings of the world. We'll run after Christ, our Lord. Listen, followers of Christ, one thing I want you to know this morning. You are blessed. You're blessed. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christians, you are blessed. You have no reason to walk around looking like you've been sucking on a lemon. You're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. 
Do you understand that? We're going to see that as we walk through the Beatitudes. And so my encouragement to you is to cast your gaze on Christ. Don't look at all the stuff that you don't have. All the things you want in this world that's not there. Those are situations. Those are things. Look to Christ. The one who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. I want to encourage you over the next few weeks to be a student of the Sermon on the Mount. Read it. Study it. Read it again. Study it again. Mark it up. Memorize passages from it as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Unbelievers, I know that you are here today and you're seeking to live a blessed life. You want to be blessed. It's totally natural. I get it. But you need to know that blessing comes through Christ and Christ alone. All those other blessings are going to fail you. They're all going to fall short. So turn to Christ. Look to Him. Look to Him. We're going to pray and we're going to close out our time this morning singing a song, Good Shepherd of My Soul. It's really a, a prayer, I think. The first verse says, Good Shepherd of My Soul, come dwell within me. Take all I am and mold your likeness in me before the cross of Christ. This is my sacrifice. A life laid down, down and ready to follow. Let's lay our lives down, ready to follow Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and God, as we get ready to just to dig through the Sermon on the Mount and to look at the way you describe the life of the believer, the kingdom ethic, so to speak, that you lay out. God, our prayer is that that you would work powerfully in us, strengthening us, enabling us to live lives that glorify you, to live lives that are set apart, consecrated to you. That we would, as your people, pursue holiness because you are holy. Not because we're trying to legalistically try to earn something or impress someone, but God, because we have been saved, we have been redeemed, and we want to magnify the name of Christ. So God, teach us what that looks like through the Sermon on the Mount. God, I, I pray for friends here today who are unbelievers. I pray that you would work in their lives, God, to show them that, that there is no amount of good deeds that we can do that merit holiness, that merit salvation. Cause them to look to you, Lord that they may trust you, Jesus, and follow you. Lord, you are our good shepherd. Our prayer now is that we lay our lives down a sacrifice to follow you, O oh God. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.